This is a recording made at the Chapel of the Open Book under the covering title of the Pleroma, the subdivision of the Epistle to the Colossians. The present series, which commenced last Thursday week, forms a set completed itself and will be entitled Seven Steps to Glory. At this meeting, we read a portion of scripture together and if you, who are listening, care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read with us Romans chapters 5 and 6. We are using this figure of the ladder, borrowing it first of all from the dream of Jacob, and then finding it endorsed by our Saviour when he spoke to Nathaniel in John the first chapter. We then saw how it had a bearing upon the covering word which is still before us, the pre-Roma, in this sense. That the pre-Roma meaning fullness, suggests somewhere emptiness. And the epistle to the Colossians is the epistle of the fullness, and the epistle to the Philippians is the epistle of the self-emptying of the Son of God. Most of us know, and we dealt with it earlier, that when it says he made himself of no reputation, he emptied himself. And the fullness is nothing to do with the question of his deity, that's another matter altogether. The the fullness is that consequence of the self-emptying of the Son of God and then the sacrificial work being accomplished. He carries all those for whom he died up this ladder the other side until we are manifested with him in glory. And the church of the one body is given the distinctive title the fullness of him that filleth all in all. We are a part of it. Well now, last time we were together we looked at the most wonderful statement that the believer can reckon himself to be crucified with Christ. The crucifixion was the added shame and degradation put upon the Son of God. He wasn't honoured as a great high priest making himself a voluntary sacrifice for the sins of his people and all his people loving him and adoring him for the fact that he was giving himself a ransom for many. Oh no, think of it. That's what it might have been, but it wasn't. Those for whom he died, mocked him. Those for whom he shed his blood, said away with him. And so we have this added uh, evidence of the enmity that is, to, that is the consequence of sin. But the, base, the basis of the teaching of the Apostle Paul is that Christ died. Christ died. If you go through the Epistle to the Romans, first few chapters, you don't get an explicit statement that Christ died until you're nearly to the end of the first section, which is the chapter 5, which we read. It speaks about him being raised from the dead twice, in Romans 1 and Romans 4, but it waits until he can say, therefore being justified, we have peace with God, and then Christ died for the ungodly. You also will remember that when he wrote the epistle to the Corinthians, in chapter 15, he said, uh, concerning the gospel that he preached, the first feature of it was how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's an explicit statement. It doesn't explain any reason why, it just tells you that the first plank in the gospel that Paul preached, and which he stood for, 
and which is passed on to us, is that Christ died, but not only so. Christ died for our sins, but not only so, according to the Scriptures. So we have behind it the whole will of God. Now you go back to the beginning of things, when sin entered into this world. God said, God said, if you disobey, you die. Satan said, thou shalt not surely die. Now it's a remarkable thing that the, that the one who belonged to Satan was one that would not shield himself under a sacrifice. The one that belonged to God offered the sacrifice. And the question of whether the wages of sin is death, the question of whether we can ever be saved apart from death, divides all mankind up with regard to Christ. Is he or is he not the one that God set forth to be the Lamb of God? Well, this may be very, very elementary. However elementary it may be, it's the basis of all our hopes, all our salvation, and all the wonders that are revealed to us in Paul's later ministry. They're all in vain if Christ did not die for the ungodly. Now, just a word or two with regard to the relationship of the death of Christ and the cross. There are two passages I want to turn to. The first one is in John 10, verse 18. This is most important that we should stress this. Verse 17, John 10, verse 17. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. I lay down my life. Therefore doth my Father love me. There's no compulsion about this, friends. There will be no need to say, therefore my, does my Father love me, love me because he has compelled me against my will to do it. That would be monstrous. No man taketh it from me. No man taketh it from me. But you say they did. They were accused of slaying him. They were accused of putting him to death. The death of the cross. Well, let's hear what our Saviour says first. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and that's a power that neither you nor I possess. You can commit suicide, of course, but you cannot lay down your life voluntarily. You can't just say, now I'm going to die. He did. They didn't take it from him, friend. He says so. I lay down my life of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Now with that, will you look at the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verse 22. Acts 2, verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you, by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. <clears throat> him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, that's one thing, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. He was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. 
to offer himself a sacrifice for sin. And he needed no wicked hands to make him do it. When the moment came for him to go up to Jerusalem, his disciples sought to, be, to dissuade him and turn him back. But he set his face. He said, it's not possible for a prophet to die outside of Jerusalem. He went to do it voluntarily. The cross is the added ignominy resulting from the enmity that is the consequence of sin. How awful. So there's the two things. We shall see further uh, points about this question of being delivered by God a little later. Now I would like to turn to the two passages in Colossians which speak about this question of dying and being dead with and then we can go into the matter a bit more carefully. Colossians chapter 2 Colossians chapter 2 verse 20 Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ and someone has said, and I think it was Sir Robert Anderson who had a good deal to do with evidence that an assumption is sometimes stronger evidence than a statement. I mean, it's so so absolutely uh, obvious that you say, well, see, if so-and-so. And that's how the apostle, he doesn't start to prove this to them. He's, he's writing to a company of people who practically know that they have this position. He's basing his argument upon it. He says, wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? So he assumes that the death of Christ, with which you are associated, has prevented you from being alive. Would you say, we're, we're alive still? Yes, but you see, there's something that's taken place. He spoke of the cross in the same way. God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. That's come in between. Oh, many a time we bypass it. Many a time we find ourselves involved and tangled, but it need not be. And so we have here that first statement. And then in chapter 3, he assumes it once again. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead. Strictly speaking, it should be now in the more modern way of expressing, for ye died, ye died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. We've got to deal with that later, of course, God willing. Well, there are the two statements. Well, now, we were reading together Romans, the fifth chapter, five and six. Let's have a look at that again, even though we've read it, <coughs> because this is where this, the subject is introduced most definitely. First of all, we have that series in Romans 5, verses 6 to 8. Notice the little word yet that comes twice. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, it, it doesn't wait for us to repent or to turn over a new leaf or to try to get ourselves a little bit more 
presentable. Just as we are. As the hymn puts it, just as I am, without one plea, while we were yet without strength. And that's the simplest possible way of speaking of a person who is unsaved. It doesn't say here he's a positive, definite sinner. It simply says he has no strength to save himself. Well, you see, it wouldn't be any consolation to a man who fell over the boat into the Atlantic and said, well, you're going to drown, old chap, but it's only because you can't swim. It's not because you're a sinful person. Would be God. Well, there's not much consolation, is it? You see, you'll be dead anyhow, friend. And dead forever, so far as God is concerned, if you cannot save yourself. Christ died for such. Then it says Christ died for the ungodly. And that's a negative too. Without strength is a negative. Ungodly is a negative. Ungodly. Sometimes it covers desperate wickedness. Sometimes it can cover the thought that God is not in their thoughts. You can't say that they're very wicked people. Sometimes they're very nice people. Very kindly. Do your good turn. But so far as God is concerned, they look at you and say, never heard of him. You see? Christ died for that. Christ died for the ungodly. Then he presents us a little argument to us. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. And of course that's a little bit of irony. Because true righteousness is a lovely thing. But you know the person who is very, very right. Oh, very, very right. You know. That you never get a penny out of him. Always pays. Always pays on the nail. Never, never an idea of a bit over. Oh no. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet, for adventure, for a good one, good man. Well, the scripture says there's none good. So you see, it's, it's an argument only according to the manner of man's speech. For adventure for a good one, someone would even dare to die. So he's put it that way, only to enhance this fact. But God commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet, see, yet, no change on our part, no move on our part, while we were yet sinners, now sinners is positive, doesn't say negative now, without strength or ungodly, sinners, positive. Christ died for us. And what are the us? Verse 10. For if when we were enemies, enemies, so there we've got a transition from just being too weak to save yourself to being a positive, active enemy. And the only remedy for any of it and all that comes in between is the death of Christ. Without it, all else is without avail. Well, you say, we know all that, blessed be God. We believe that years ago and we've heard it preached in gospel meetings. Well, friends, Let's say hallelujah just quietly to ourselves for what a mercy it is that we've ever heard it or that we've ever taken part in making it known to others. As the Apostle said, the first plank in his gospel was that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You might notice in Romans itself 
One or two statements with regard to this question of death. Romans the first chapter, verse 32. Romans the first chapter, verse 32. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Now that's a statement of God. That those who do certain things, break the law, act in this way, they are worthy of death. God doesn't stoop to tell us why they are worthy of death, why the penalty should always be death. But it's written all over the scriptures and it's written all over human nature. As I've said in another context, in this meeting, I think you could have assembled here, or you could go to the Albert Hall and fill it, with the greatest variety of opinions that you could imagine in this wide world. All faiths, all unbeliefs, all political opinions, and they all agree on one thing, and that is that they belong to a mortal race. Nobody bothers to be silly enough to deny that. But if they did, you know they were wrong in the upper story already. There it is. And if you were to ask people who belong to a race that is marked with death, why in such a wonderful world, why with such wonderful possibilities, those who are thus created should have that mark upon them unless they've got the Bible, they don't know. They give you all sorts of reasons borrowing from evolution and whatnot, but they don't know. And the scripture comes forward with no uncertain sound and says right at the beginning, death was a- attached by God to disobedience. Dust thou art, and to dust shalt thou return. And that was negative by Satan. He said, oh, you will not surely die. And there the thing goes on right down the age. When you get to the last page of the Bible, the last page of the Bible. No more death. No more curse. No more death. All the way that's travelled before we get to that point when this mortal shall put on immortality. And so we have that statement that they're worthy of death. Look at chapter 6, verse 21. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. The end of those things is death. The things that you were engaged in. Or again, look at verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. It's something that you've earned. Something that you've earned. It's not gratuitous. It's not dished out to you whether you've sinned or whether you haven't. The wages of sin is death in contrast with the gift of God which is eternal life. And then you notice this emphasis about it being free. It says in verse 20 you were free from righteousness. What a freedom. Free from righteousness. Then it goes on to say in verse 22, but now be made free from sin. And if you'd like to turn back to Romans 6, verse 7. For he that is dead is freed from sin. 
And that word freed is actually the word justified. He that is dead is justified from sin. And that's true all the world over. Whether you're a believer or not. Do you realise that? Look, the wages of sin is death. You have sinned. Ultimately you die. Well, you're justified. But that's all it that you've got no life. You've got no forgiveness. You've paid the wages. You've paid the penalty rather. He that is dead is justified from sin. And I believe in Scottish uh, law, when a person is executed, capital punishment in Scotland, the term is that on that particular day, that man was justified. But you see, we could be justified in another way. We could be justified because Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died the just for the unjust. And therefore, instead of paying the penalty ourselves, we enter into all the blessed consequences of somebody dying for us. Christ died for the ungodly. Whenever there is death, there has been the settlement of sin in that particular. And and inasmuch as Christ did no sin, and knew no sin, and voluntarily died for his very enemies, a justification in another aspect comes into the scriptures, and for that we rejoice. Then again, in chapter 7, verse 5, we have these words. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Fruit unto death. Dead sea fruit. And then, eventually, the cry of the Apostle in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This is a Christian. This is an Apostle. He realized that when he would do good, evil was present with him. Who should deliver me? He doesn't tell you who, friends. But he says in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you know, don't you? Well, now look at the two verses, Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And leave the rest of it out. You'll find that's borrowed from verse 4. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. So there's a there's an acquittal. No condemnation. If you will now turn to Romans the 8th chapter, you have that passage which is so dear to us, the wonderful assurance that it brings. Verse 31, what do we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Well, how do we know that God is for us? Well, he says, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? There's the argument, putting to our mouth. Well now let's turn to another, or one other passage before we turn to the question of the use of the word hupa on behalf of and then instead of. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 14. 
2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we all died. Our version says, then we're all dead. Well, that's so. But it's more strictly to the Apostles' statement, if one died for all, then the all, that's the all for whom he died, the all died, because he died for them and they're associated with it. Do you belong to that company? Did he die for you? If so, you died with him, you're that group that have been associated with him in death, you were to be associated with him in fullness of life. Well now, there are one or two ways in which the death of Christ is brought before us in the scriptures. One, which I've alluded to before, is that God might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. We mustn't be so concerned about our own justification as to forget that God has planned salvation so that he is justified when he does it. There's no compromise with God. His holiness has never been invaded. He has never said to any of his stewards, write down 50. When our Saviour came and took our place, nobody sat down and said, how much owe us now, write down 50. He bore our sins in his own body to the tree. We're not making a commercial transaction of it. We don't know how but we do know that he settled it absolutely, righteously, completely, so that they'll never be remembered again against us. Now you go back to the Old Testament and you get words that hint that substitution was in mind. You remember how in the early chapters, when our parents sinned, they attempted to cover themselves by their own methods. God stripped them and then he gave them a coat of skin. Well, you can't get a coat of skin, not in the ordinary way, without taking the life of an animal. That was God's answer in the Garden of Eden. Then, when Cain slew Abel, and Eve had another son, she called his name appointed, or set. The word set. For God hath given me or appointed me another seed. Instead of, see, instead of. And then you come to the mountain where Isaac was to be offered and the, the hand of Abraham is stayed and he offered the ram instead of his son Isaac. And then in Genesis 44 where Judah stands before Joseph and says, I became surety for him. Let me abide instead of the lad. That's three times over in the book of Genesis. Instead of. In the stead of. And you get it of course that he died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Now the word huper, H-U-P-E-R in the first place means on the behalf of. And then it takes a deeper meaning in the stead of. I'll give you one or two examples because this is important. Philemon, verse 13. This word that I'm giving you is very often translated for. Christ died for our sins. Well, you'll see now by the use of this word in Philemon, that's the last epistle that Paul uh, wrote, 
far as we know, before he was liberated from his prison, he wrote to Philemon and said these very touching words. He said, I'm sending you back, Onesimus, a runaway slave, who I have begotten in my bonds. Verse 11, which is in time past was to, to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and me. Of course, on the surface, you don't get that, do you? Have you ever been in a little company where somebody just flings a word across the company and everybody's looking blank except one? And they've got a key. Sometimes you can make a little joke and then nobody laughs. Have you been like that? Well, it may be your fault. But on the other hand, it may depend upon the knowledge of the person. Do you know what he's doing? He's picking up the word Philemon. And the word Philemon is the word that, that provides him with the word profitable. Oh, he said he wasn't very Philemon once. He was very un-Philemon. He was very unprofitable. But he's a believer and he's coming back. Oh, won't you let him live up to his new name? Isn't it fine to know that the Apostle Paul could play with a word like that for the glory of God? Whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him that is mine own bounds, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead, have you got it? That in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. In thy stead. That's taking your place. Doing something that you ought to have done. Well, that's the word that's used of Christ's offering. In thy stead. Let's get one or two. John the sixth chapter. Verse 51. John 6, 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give in the stead of the life of the world. The life of the world outside is forfeit. I am going to give my life in the stead of, so that they may live. And chapter 10, verse 11. This is the same chapter where he says, I lay down my life of myself, you remember. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for, for, on the behalf of, in the stead of, his sheep. And then we have it in Romans 5, which we've read, but we may not be sure of where the words actually occur. Romans 5, verse 6. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for us. This is this word in the stead of. The ungodly. And again, in verse 11. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. There is the feeling that it was on our account. And the words I have quoted from memory but I would like to make sure of them, is 1 Peter 3.18. 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for, in the stead of, the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And then we have, as we know, passages, we've read them in Colossians and in Romans, 
that we died with Christ. So we're, we're the second rung of this ladder. We're crucified with him and we died with him. Well now there's a consequence. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 24, and this is an important one because it's, it's bearing upon a verse in Ephesians. So mark this carefully. 1 Peter 2, 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. I want you to notice the words particularly. Being dead to sins. Now could you tolerate it? Could you tolerate this translation? Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead in sins, should live under righteousness. Well, how can you live under righteousness if you're dead in sin? Now, the reason I'm stressing it like that is because that is the way that very word, that very form of a, an expression is translated in Ephesians chapter 2. So, will you turn to this? This is often referred to as a proof text that all men by nature are dead in sins. Well, whether we're all dead in sins or not, that's not the point. The first point is, is that what God said? We mustn't twist the text because it's a convenient way of emphasizing the truth. We want what the truth was in the mind of the man who wrote these words. And these words are identical with the one we had in Peter, with this difference, that he said, dead to sin, and the apostle says, dead to trespasses and sin. So they can't make any difference there. And you hath he quickened. Now our version says, who were dead. That's the past tense, isn't it? So they'll never take another liberty. Well, once you start translating wrong, you have to do it two or three times over. It's like the man who tells one lie, he's going to tell another one to get out of the trouble of the first one. They had to put down the past tense when they knew full well that it was the present. And anybody who can read the Greek can see it's the present. So let's put it. And you, being, being at this very moment, present, you being dead, two trespasses and sins. Instead of telling you this is the state of man by nature, this is giving you your glorious position by grace. Let's get another illustration of the same um, use, in case you're not quite uh, convinced. Romans, the sixth chapter. I'm going to put it the other way around, although it'll sound almost like blasphemy. Romans 6, verse 10. Verse 9 says, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now, supposing I do what they do in Ephesians. For in that he died, he died in sin once. That's horrible, isn't it? How say they never died in sin? He died to sin. He died for sin. And he died for sinners, but he never died in sin. If he did, we have no saviour. So you see, we've been robbed of it by that translation. There's no preposition in, in Ephesians 2. The only justification for it is that the native case sometimes takes the word in, or to, or at, or by, and they unfortunately chose this one. 
I remember there was a proper Hanabaloo going on once in a meeting in Scotland where I had published this in the Marine Expositor and it was a good opportunity for some of these folks to expose the terrible danger it was to read anything I'd written, you know. And after they'd been having a good old go at it for some time, one of the friends who knew a little bit more than the others said, I believe Brother So-and-so has a Newbury Bible. Oh yes, Newbury Bible. I wonder if he would read the marginal comment of Newbury. Oh dear, oh dear. Newbury, the one that they valued so much, said exactly the same as what I'd said. That was a bit awkward, wasn't it? So you see, it wasn't simply that I've invented it myself. Those who look at the original, they say, well, what, I wonder why they did it. Well, we, we don't know. They did the best they could. But it's wise for us not to merely follow a leader. Search and see if it has to do with your peace. Now, what about other consequences of this death of Christ? We get um, in Hebrews 2.14 a very blessed statement. Hebrews 2.14 For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Why? Why? That through death all was impinging on that he came to die. Hebrews 10 says, A body of self repaired thee. The offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He did not come merely to give parables to people or to heal people's diseases or to go about doing good. He came specifically for one purpose. The only one who was ever born into this world who had no need to die was the one who came specifically to do it. But he came into this world for no other purpose than for our salvation. All of other things attached to it, but he had no need to come himself. But every other person who's ever been in this world had to die for his own sins. So there was no other person in the wide world that ever could have died for the sins of others. And there never will be. In that he died, he died of a sin once. Christ died no more. There'll never be another saviour if this Saviour isn't ours, we never will find another. And so we have this stress. And then you get the statement in 1 Corinthians 15. The strength of sin is the law. And the sting of death, death is sin. So a person who believes Christ dies because we've got to come to the end of this old man and start afresh. Otherwise there'll be a patch up, you see, for for all the time of glory. That couldn't be. But for the believer, there's no steam in death. It's extracted. Because his Saviour's died for him. He didn't come to save us from dying. He came up to save us from death as the consequence of sin. So we do not die as a consequence of sin. We die because it's impossible for flesh and blood to inherit the kingdom of God. But we die with him. And we raise with him. And we live with him. Oh, it's a part of the process. So it's a different idea. And as I said earlier in another meeting, as far as my search has led me, there isn't a single reference in the Bible, old or new, 
where an unbeliever is said to fall asleep when they die. But it's written of the believer over and over again. Well now just another feature. This word delivered that we looked at in the Romans, the 8th chapter. You remember? He delivered him up for us all. I'd like you to go through the use of this word. But it's a very precious use of a very wonderful word. The first passage is Matthew 26, 45. And every passage I turn you to is exactly the same word. Used in a little different way, of course, but exactly the same word. Matthew 26, 45. Then cometh he to his disciples, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed. That word betrayed is the word used of God who delivered up his Son. God never betrayed his Son, but it's exactly the same word. Don't you see? A man may do a thing, and is a betrayer. God may do it, and he's given the most marvellous exhibition of his love. It depends on the motive. It depends on the why. So here's the word. Then we come to Acts 3.13, same word which is translated betrayed. Acts 3.13 The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, that glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied. You delivered him up. God delivered him. That was right. You delivered him. That was wrong. You were delivering up something that was not your own. And then, in Romans 4, 25, I'm racing the clock now, friends, don't forget, that's why I'm turning quickly. Romans 4, 25, speaking of Christ, who was delivered for our offences and was raised again for our justification. Delivered for our offences. That's the word betrayed. Then, Galatians 2.20, the Apostle's statement where he says, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. But the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself, that's the word betrayed, he gave himself for me. And in Ephesians 5.2, he says it again, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering. He gave himself for me, said Paul. He gave himself for us, said Paul. He gave himself for the church, said Paul. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now that's the use of that word betray. And there are more passages than I've given you. Two sides of a great act, you see. To deliver, deliver him up. God did it. In grace and in love. And we are assured by the testimony of the scriptures that when he died, when he died to sin, once, we are reckoned to have died with him. So we're up the second rung of this ladder, friends. And I hope you don't, really, don't feel that we've been wasting time facing this tremendous fact for what it cost him None of us will know this side of eternity. 
Whether we'll go up every one of these rungs of the ladder step by step, I think not. We should have to make a group of some of it. But here we're at the very basis of it. You have been crucified with Christ. You have died with him. And the third is you're buried with him. Finish. If there's ever a move now, it comes from God. And that's the teaching of scripture. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Maybe then by his mercy and through his spirit, make this testimony of his scriptures our own.